Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. I got to tell you something, people. I, I just I just got a speech from uh, Joanne a few minutes ago because she's been saying to me, I, I don't listen, and I, I do listen, and but then she sometimes doesn't say stuff, and she says, I swear I said it. And so she just was in the kitchen before she went upstairs because I could record, and she said, the toaster oven, the cord goes on the other side, and she said to me to repeat it. And I can't believe that I'm 52 years old and my girlfriend is making me repeat things. And I think what it is is she sits there and says I don't listen, but I do. But then she gets mad because she always says, we always listen to your guests. You remember what they said? And I go, well, yeah, they're my guests. I mean, I love you and I live with you, but I got to listen to my guests else my show would suck. Anyway, we have a great show. I'm very excited about my guest today. He's a great director, an actor. I know his nephew and his son got drafted by my beloved Phillies. I know he's not with them anymore in your system, but I said, man, this is going to be a great day. My guest is Dennis Dugan. How you doing, Dennis? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. And and uh, uh, let me just say, that line, I'm, you're kind of fucked today because you're only as hip as your guests, and I don't think I'm all that hip. So... Uh, if there's any alternate channels people want to go to, should we just pause for a second while they leave? You are hipper than you know, my friend. You are hipper than you know. You know, I, I, I directed uh, the last year of Moonlighting. I was on Moonlighting the second to the last year, and then I directed the last year. And Bruce Willis used to say to me when he'd sign off, when we, if we were talking on the phone or if I was leaving him, he'd go, Dugan, be cool. And if you can't think of how to be cool think of what I'd do and do that. <laughs> Bruce, another fellow Jersey guy. So, so I got to ask you, now how did you you're from you're from Illinois originally, right? Yeah. Now, now when did this whole what did you want to do when you were a kid? When did this whole acting, directing because you've had a very successful long career, but as I looked at your thing, you got to start a little bit late. When did this all kick in? Was you a, were you a performer as a kid or how did this all start? I, I didn't I didn't start that late. I I I uh uh I went to I, I went to Wheaton High School and uh, uh just outside of Chicago and and at that high school when I was a freshman in my brother's class, the senior class, the guy running for president of the school was Bob Woodward. Wow. And Bob Woodward was like, they were like the, the you know, it was a little nice, nice little, uh, you know, American suburb town. And they were the, the Woodwards, were, they were the richest people in town. And it was, a, it's a real Republican, uh, Christian town. Wheaton's got Wheaton College there. So, so, and Bob Woodward was like the button down Republican kind of guy. And he ran against uh, Gary Blumenshine was a sort of a heavy set guy. Blumenshine, I'm thinking maybe he was Jewish, but we wouldn't have known in Wheaton, Illinois if there was if they were Jewish, right? Because right. we didn't have that. So I was my parents were Republicans, but I was drawn to Gary Blumenshine. But Gary Blumenshine lost to Bob Woodward. And and then, you know, a few years later, Bob Woodward topples the Rep Republican president of the United States. So that was that, and then two years behind me was John Belushi. Oh, wow! So we had a, we had some uh, we had some uh, showbiz people heading through there when I when I went through. But I I, I then went to the uh, the Goodman Theater in Chicago, studied to be an actor, and went to New York and worked as an actor in New York, and then came out to L.A. with a play in 1972. And uh, the play was kind of a hit, and I made sort of a hit, so I moved out here and, and uh, worked as an actor for a whole bunch of years, and then started sort of shooting my own little Super 8 movies, and that was when Super 8 was like film. You had to cut the film and glue it together. Uh, not like these kids today. And uh, uh, so I was making my own little films, and I had done... Uh, the Rockford Files for Steve Cannell, and I had done some shows for Bochco, and and so they hired me to do this thing called Richie Brockelman, Private Eye. So I, I did that, and as I was getting my acting career going, I 
started just thinking, wondering what this whole film thing was. And so I, as I, I made these films, the panel goes, hey, I didn't know you wanted to come, come direct for me. So I started apprenticing there, and then I started doing episodes. And then uh, that's why you think I, that's why you think I, uh, my, I started late because that was my directing career. I started late, but I had a whole acting career. I no, I, I, I read it yeah. on, your, on your IMDb, uh, yeah. which, you know, that's the IMDb and Wikipedia, which Wikipedia is half, uh, you know, half wrong half the time. But it, it seemed like you didn't get your first acting gig till you were 26, which seems a little bit later for at the time. Yeah, because that was, because I, cause I did, I was doing the whole New York thing. Now, did you enjoy New York? Did you enjoy theater? I mean, what was, and what was the play that brought you out here? It was a play called, uh, well, I, I, you know what, when you, when you're 22 years old and you land in New York and, and, uh, I had 400 bucks when I landed in New York and, and, uh, you know, you work part-time at jobs and, and you're trying to get an agent and you're trying to get a, a job and I didn't get a job for like two and a half, three years. And, uh, I finally got in this play called the house of blue leaves by John Guare, the famous playwright. And, uh, uh, so I was like, it was already, I was a replacement. And, uh, so I got, oh my God, I've got a job. I've got an off-Broadway show. I'm, I'm, my, my career's on its way. And six weeks later, guys broke into the theater, uh, stole the safe and burned the lobby down. So they had to close the play. So my first job was six weeks long. And then I thought, oh my God, my career's over again. And they said, hey, we're doing a, uh, we're doing the show in Los Angeles, so anybody from the New York cast who wants to be in Los Angeles, come do it. So in the middle of winter, I came out, came out to L.A. and and uh, like I said, made it made a kind of a hit in in that. And, and so I started getting, I started getting work out here as soon as I got out here. Now, how did you feel about the transition from theater to TV? Because you know there's a big difference, and you know your your theater background was it a easy step for you? It, it kind of was because I, I kept doing, I kept doing theater out here. You know, I did a, a, I worked at the Taper. I did some plays there, and I, and so I kept. And, and there's a, a there's a theater company out here called Theater West, and I worked with them and stuff. So I kept doing the two things at once. And you know, what intrigued me about it was I'm doing film. You know, and suddenly they go, "Oh, could you, you're holding your drink. Could you hold it closer to your head?" And I didn't understand why because I was a theater actor and used to making bigger gestures and stuff. So I'd just ask, I'd go behind the guy, I'd say, why do you need me to do that? And they'd say, well, look at this and say, okay, great. And it just became more and more interesting to me. It's great, because I do, I do love IMDb. And I look like some of the shows you were on, Love American Style, which I remember as a kid, my parents would let us watch that. We would go camping, and we had a TV. <laughs> and and the, I remember the fireworks, and it was such a big thing, because it was one of those shows that they had recurring people. And we were so used to, I mean, back then there was shows that had that. It was just so cool, because you could see different actors every week. Yeah, yeah. And you were also on Rich Man, Poor Man. Yeah, that was the first, by the way, the very first miniseries. And uh, it was, there had never been anything like that before with Nick Nolte, Peter Strauss. And, uh, and Falconetti. Yeah. Um, um, I remember Nick Nolte and I used to drive Peter Strauss crazy because we'd, uh, we had shot a lot of nights on that, on that show. And so we'd go in into Peter's trailer, he was a big deal then, and uh, we'd fart, and it made him really upset. <laughs> the wonderful of being youth. So, so, so you're acting, you're acting. And see, that's that's what's great. See, that's that's the stories I love. That Peter Strauss got upset, and I bet I bet Nolte was a loud farter. He just looks like a guy yeah, who would be we loud. We would just go in there and just blast him, and, 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 and he'd go, "Guys, this is my trailer." <laughs> So, so you said, you know, as you're acting away, you started getting the eight millimeter. What made you want to do that? What, what did you sit there? I mean, I mean, you said the acting where you just, you were happy with acting, but did you ever think it would end up by getting that eight millimeter? It would end up giving you this lengthy and very successful directing career. Dude, I never, you know, if you grow up in Wheaton, Illinois, you don't, you don't, I had no concept of, of uh, like literally when I came out of here with the play, I was the first time I'd ever been in California. So, I, I just 
I wanted to be an actor, and so I studied acting, and I worked really hard when I went to New York. I continued studying. I worked really hard, and that's what that's what I wanted to be. And I would have, ne- if you had said to me, "Yeah, you'll be an actor," and I would have said, "Yeah, okay, I could be successful, and I'll and I'll have a a, a, a career in New York theater." I would have been happy to complete that as my dream. And then I came out here and I started doing TV and movies and stuff and I said, well, this is really fun and I enjoyed and I enjoyed that whole life. I enjoyed it. I just got curious about this other craft, which was directing. And, and, and so I just thought, well, I'll explore that. And the more I explored it, the more I liked it. And it, you know, it, it, it basically employed some more of my talents, you know, in terms of like the math of it and the organization of it, and and you're able to be organized, totally organized, totally prepared, and also then be able to be totally chaotic. And and uh, you know, it, my all the work that I put into my acting pays pays off when I'm talking to actors, and so um, it just it worked out and it kept out in a in a in a good way for me uh i still wouldn't mind acting here and there but i just love i just love directing but again if you had come to me and said yeah you're gonna go and you're gonna direct like 15 movies i would have gone you're out of your brain right now what was it like when you first i know i think your first directing for tv was hunter what was that like when you had to take the helm and also when you're coming from a background of being an actor did you feel you were on you were more eye to eye with the other actors or were you a little intimidated because they knew you were an actor i don't think you know again when you go on when when you're you know like it it was for steve camel productions you know and so that was a big big group of of shows that he was doing he was like one of the monsters of the midway at that time and so if you're hired you're hired you know and so if you go on you, you know as the sort of guest host director of a, of, a, of a show like Hunter they just they don't care if you were an actor or whatever they assume that you know what you're doing and uh, and you kind of got to do and, and what I did was when I apprenticed there I went I went to that place to his facility every day for six months and I followed directors around and I went to casting and I went to editing and I saw all of that stuff and, and finally I said to Steve and I go, you know, I think I'm ready. And he goes, okay, direct Hunter, you know. And and uh, when you, I was I was intimidated the first day, but I had all my shots. I knew what to do, and uh, I just, I just actually one of the things I did is I dressed. I, I remember normally I just wear a t-shirt and jeans and a baseball cap to everything I do, but uh, I thought maybe I should. Uh, so I, I bought, I, I got a, a white shirt, a dress shirt, and a belt, and a, and a tie that I didn't tie, but I, I, I tied it and then loosened it to open the collar. Because yeah. I wanted it. I didn't feel like a director. I felt like an actor who got a directing job. Okay. But I wanted the people to think that I was adult. <laughs> and that tie always does it. Well, I just thought that. I just thought, that, and it also made me think that they thought that. <laughs> so, did, did did they buy it? They they must they must have believed it. They must have because I did one, and then I did another one. So yeah, you know, and then I did a bunch of shows for cattle, and then I went over and you know again I did I did uh, moonlighting. You know, I was on moonlight. Yeah, how did that happen? Did you get booked as an actor first, then director? Did you get booked as a actor and director together how did that happen this is a weird this is a this is such a story about how you always got to do your job no matter what you do you always got to put your nose down and do your job because you don't know where it's ever going to lead so i this is what this is before i was a director uh I, i was doing my own little things but i hadn't gotten any directing jobs yet and i go in and i audition for moonlighting when they were when they were casting it, so I gave the best audition I gave for anything that I ever auditioned for, and I thought, man, I'm going to get this job. So end of the day, my agent Ron Meyer calls me up and he goes, hey, 
Glenn Karen, who's the creator, he says, Glenn wants to uh, uh, talk to you. He wants to call you directly at home. I go, great. Hang up, and I go, I got this job now. The creator's calling. So he calls me up, and he says, I want to tell you, we've looked in New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, and every city in between, and he said, you gave by far the best reading of anybody in the United States. And I said, well, thank you very much. That's great. And, uh, and I'm thinking, next thing he's going to ask me is for my sizes for the copy. <laughs> and, and, he, and he goes, uh, but I'm not taking you to the network. And I go, what? And he goes, he said, there's a guy in New York who read and he, you know, he said, I created it and he's perfect. He's just the guy. He said, if I take you to the network, you will get the job. And he said, and I want him to get the job. So I'm calling you personally to let you know that so that you don't get it like secondhand from your agent or somebody and, and you don't understand. And I said, well, I, I appreciate that. Thank you very much. And fuck you. <laughs> and and uh, <laughs> no, I appreciated that, that he did that. And so Bruce Willis was the guy. And Bruce Willis gets it. And by the way, he was 100% right. Because Bruce Willis has had a, you know, a sense of edge and danger and New Yorky unpredictability that me as an actor I would never have I'm more in the John Ritter kind of zone you know just like we're pleasant we're funny and we're not going to scare you at all so like four years later I get a phone call and they go they want you to be on the show they want you to marry Sybil Shepherd. and I go really and they go yeah they want you on the rest of this season all of next season and you start, this was on Friday, New Year's Eve on a Friday. And he go, and they go, uh, you go in tomorrow, you get your costume Monday, boom, you're there. We'll make a deal for a year and a half of the show. And I go, all right, great. I'm in. So I go in. Uh, I get, I meet Sybil Shepherd in the first episode. I get married to her in the second episode. And then, and then it goes on the air and they, and they call me into the office upstairs at Moonlighting and they go, hey, Nobody who watches Moonlighting wants her to marry anybody but Bruce. So we're getting like tons of calls. People are furious that she's not marrying Bruce. After all this time, they've invested in watching the show. So I go, what are we going to do? And they go, well, we're going to get your, your marriage annulled. <laughs> you must hate Bruce Willis by now. <laughs> <laughs> so you're getting annulled. But they said, you're directing them. I had started doing some episodes. So I go, yeah. And they go, well, Bruce and Sybil love you, so uh, would you come back and direct every other episode next season instead of acting? I go, 100%. I'll do it. So I went from just doing various episodes to having a, a, a year-long gig with them. Uh, and that then, because at that time, that show was such a huge show, TV directors were TV directors and movie directors were movie directors. But Moonlighting was different because it was so cinematic and kind of crazy that you could you could move into movies from that show. Now it's all different. You know, everybody does everything. Uh, but so out of that, I got this movie called Problem Child. And then uh, that was a crazy show and you know, then then my career began. Now, when when you got hired to direct Problem Child, did you think it would become? I mean, and that's like a cult hit. Like everyone's seen that movie. Did you, when you looked at the script, what was your thought? Because you are making a jump from TV to movies, and what was the difference in scheduling for you? Was it more grueling as a movie director or as a TV director because you're on a shorter time frame? It does, you know. Other directors and I talk about this. It doesn't seem to matter, you know. It's like, like when when I did Zohan for Sandler, we we I sh the movie shot ninety days and I shot an extra nine days in Israel and various places. So I shot ninety nine days. There wasn't one day when I didn't feel like, holy shit, are we going to make this day? God Almighty! Uh, and if I go, if you go on a show. 
you know, I did Aaron spelling shows and stuff, and you have seven days to do it, and you walk in there, God Almighty, they're going to make my day. You just got to make your day. So I think the pressure stays exactly the same. But with Problem Child, I got the script. They, the, I, I got a call, and they said, uh, yeah, they want, you to come, you, they want you to come in and pitch yourself for this movie tomorrow morning. It was like 5 o'clock in the afternoon. And uh, uh, so get ready and go pitch. I'd never pitched, I'd never had an interview for a movie. So I actually called Glenn Karen and I said, uh, I said, Glenn, I, I'm up for this movie. I said, I don't, how do I pitch? I don't even know how to pitch myself. What do I do? And I said, the script is like pretty, it's an interesting kind of idea, but it isn't there and stuff. And, and Glenn, Glenn said, he, he said, they offered that movie to me. He said, it's not a movie for me to do. He said, but it's a perfect movie for you to do because you can do that chaotic kind of crazy crap. He said, just read it and, and don't think of it as you got to do that script. Think of it how you can make it Dennis Dugan crazy. And I said, okay. So I go, I, I stay up all night and I worked on all that. I go into uh, the Universal, to the Black Tower, up to the top of the Black Tower to the president's Sweet Casey Silver up to his office. And Brian Grazer was one of the producers, and Bob Simons was one of the producers. So we're in, the, we're in, we're in his, big, his big office, and he's got this huge wooden coffee table in the, in the center, couches all around it, and there's producers and sub-producers and miniature producers, hundreds <laughs> of producers. And uh, so I said, look, this movie... The only way to make this movie great is to have this kid be every kid's fantasy of a bad boy kid. And they go, how'd you do that? And I go, and I hadn't, I hadn't pre-planned this. But I get up, and I get up, and I walk onto his coffee table. It's a big, you know, a big, like, <laughs> it, isn't, it wasn't like an antique thing. It was a great big, heavy, sturdy coffee table. I get up at his coffee table, and like, I go, I, look, I said, I've never pitched myself for a movie before. I don't know what the fuck I'm supposed to do. But I said, you're looking at me like, this guy's on my coffee table. And I go, this is what this movie's got to be about. This movie's got to be about, did you see that? Did you, the next morning, people are saying, you got to see this movie because uh, the guy gets up on the coffee table and walks around and everybody in the thing in their suits. I said, you guys are all in your suits. You're going, this guy's out of his fucking mind. And I said, that's what this movie's got to be about. And then I did the rest of my pitch, and I leave. And a, that afternoon, I get a call from Casey Silver, and he says, okay, so you got up on my coffee table, and you got the move. Now, <laughs> see that? Quick thinking on your feet. Joy, actually on my feet. So yeah, so, so now now when you started directing it, was it were you uh, did you just love directing the movie? I mean, as you say, you know you do the last day, but is the tempo different? Nah, it's not. Like I said, it, 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 the tempo isn't any different because you're you know the one thing you can do is you can you obviously have the luxury of doing more takes, and you have the luxury of having more coverage, and and so uh, so. But still, everything goes a little slower because it's a movie, you know. So they're lighting a little better and, you know, taking a little longer to do this. And then you got a dolly shot that you wouldn't have in a, in a TV show. And, but when I, I did that movie, and then I did another movie. I did another movie for the Zucker Brothers called uh, uh, Brain Donors. Yeah, with, uh, with John Cassier and Bob Nelson. With uh, John, no, John Turturro. Oh, Turturro, okay, Turturro. I think it was John Cassier, yeah. okay. No, was John Turturro and Bob Nelson. Uh, and, and, uh, then, and that was a flop. I think it was a pretty funny movie, but it was a flop. And, and uh, so now I'm like cold as ice and uh, back to television. And I'm doing television and again, you know, especially in the days of the Aaron Spelling shows. They wanted to do it in seven days. And, you know, he pretty much liked a good, big, fat, wide master and then a bunch of close-ups. 
and that's that was sort of the formula of doing it. What I did is I thought I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna shoot every one of these just like I was shooting a movie, uh, but I'm not gonna go over over the 12 hours. I'm not gonna go into overtime. I'm not gonna cost them anything. But I want to make this as complex as possible. So in case I ever get another movie, I'll be a better director. So that's what I did all the time, and I took every job I could get, you know, and. And every time I would go, okay, how do I make this complex? How do I figure out a way to do this so that it looks better and I have more coverage and, and it's not just the normal one wide shot and a bunch of close-ups? So I did that for a couple of years and then got uh, Happy Gilmore. Now, were you familiar with Sandler's work? I mean, I know he, before that, I think you know he had done Billy Madison. Of course, we know him from doing stand-up at SNL, yeah. but were you were you familiar and were you excited to get back to comedy? Because it seems like you were going back and forth on TV, you were doing some comedy, I mean, you did some L.A. Law, you did some Picket Fences, but yeah, this yeah. this is straight in your face, you know, Adam Sandler type comedy. Were you very excited and, and how did that offer come up for you? I mean, did they just sit there, did your agent pitch it, did you have to pitch yourself again? Or oh, I'll that tell happen? you what, I'll tell you, it was, it was weird because when I, again, this is a story, this is another, I'm telling you, every story I tell you is like, you gotta, you gotta be in the moment every minute when you're working. Because if you're not in the moment, then you're just sliding by, and uh, you won't go anywhere. You gotta always be like right on the edge of like pushing yourself as hard as you can. So I was doing brain donors, and when I, uh, I was the first director that the Zucker that the Zucker brothers had, because they'd always directed their own shit. So. I was the first outside guy they ever hired. So it wasn't really in the club. You know, they never really accepted me in the club and, 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 and uh, I don't know, maybe they were pissed off that they didn't direct it themselves. I don't know, but they hired me to direct it. But then I would come up, I would come up with casting ideas and stuff and they would just I'd say, no, 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 we do it this, we do it this way, whatever. So I bring in this guy, this stand-up comic, four times. Adam Sandler's his name. He wasn't Saturday Night Live. He wasn't anything. He was just a guy trying to get a job. And I thought he was really funny and really good. So I brought him in four times, and every time they, they mixed it. The other guy I brought in, I brought in the tape of this guy who was on TV on a variety show. They nixed him off the tape. So they nixed Adam Sandler, who was the guy I brought in four times, and they nixed Jim Carrey. Oh, wow. <laughs> Yeah, so we could have, literally, we could have had Sandler and Jim Carrey probably for $40,000 for the two of them. <laughs> but we didn't, okay? So now, three years later, whatever, three and a half years later, I get a call, and they go, there's a golf movie, uh, and it was it, it was Bob Simons who had, you know, who had done Problem Childhood. But I didn't know it was Bob Simons. They said, there's a golf movie, here's the script, Go in in the morning. It's the same as problem job. Work on it overnight and go in the morning and pitch yourself. They're shooting in five weeks. So I go, all right. I work all night. I have my thick stack of notes. I walk into the office, and Adam Sandler's there. And he goes, you. And I go, you. And he turns around to Bob Simons and Jack Arapito and they, all his guys. He says, this guy brought me in. And he tells the whole story of me bringing him in four times for, for brain donors. And he says, uh, uh, he says, every time you brought me back in, I thought, well, I got the job now for sure because I'm coming back again. And I'd call people and say, I've got this job. And then I didn't have the job. He said, but you know what? You believed in me. I like that. You're doing this movie. So I quickly like take all my notes and hide them behind my back because <laughs> I'm thinking at that point, all I can do is talk myself out of the job. But that's how I got that job. So, see, so you were nice to him. So then what was it like working with him once you finally, because you, you saw something in him and he knew you believed in him. What was it like when you guys finally hit the set? It must have been a lot of trust probably because you guys, even though you never worked together, you had somewhat of a past. Yeah, and we, we you know, we got, we, we, we got along absolutely great. Just uh, that shoot was fun. We are up in Vancouver. Nobody expected anything out of us, you know, uh, uh Universal, I think, kind of at that time, because he, uh, he had he'd done uh, Billy Madison, and that did well, and it did great, because he had built up this great college following. 
And so at that time, DVD sales were just, I think they were just kind of like tapes and DVD were like, that was becoming a huge market. And, and Universal was thinking at the time, you know, whatever box office he does, he does, but they knew that they were going to make huge money from him in the aftermarket. So we did the movie up there for like 11 million bucks, just made it as crazy and funny as we possibly could, came down here and, and uh, showed it to them, and they went, yeah, 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 whatever, but they didn't really put, they didn't put all of their heart and soul into selling it. We had the premiere, and the premiere, pe people were just screaming with laughter. Just, you couldn't even hear half of the jokes. And, and, uh, and suddenly they go, oh, geez, maybe we got something here. And as it turns out, they did. So it, it becomes a hit, and everyone likes it, and it's still, it still holds up. It's funny as hell. So you're doing that, and then you go, and now you end up back on TV? No. I did uh, no. Then I did no. Then I did. Um, you did. You did a uh, uh, Beverly Hills Ninja. Right. That was with uh, Farley. Yeah, with Farley. Yeah. And what was yeah. it like working with him? He's fucking awesome. Just the sweetest guy. Really, just a ge genuinely sweet, sweet guy. You know, and uh, every day I'd go in his trailer, and we'd look at each other, and we go, "Nobody cares about this movie like we care about this movie." This is our movie. We're going to go put a W up on the board. And then we'd just go like football players on the sideline. We'd just go. He did it gently because he would kill me. But we would just <laughs> smash our shoulders together and go, yeah, we're going to put up a W today. And out we go. I mean, he was just, he goes, coach, I'll run through walls for you. And he was just, a, a, he just, he loved being silly and he loved the, the whole process. And I loved him. We just had, he's a, he was a fabulous human being. Well, it was just you could work with these younger comedic talents. I mean, it must have been a great feeling for you to get to work with them because you, you were imparting some of, you know, directing them. It must have been a great feeling. Oh, dude. You know, because he said to me, because I'd, I'd say to him, I'd go, hey, you know what? Uh, why are you doing this? And he goes, I don't know. i go, but think about this. Think about the scene before and the scene. And he, if, I, after a couple times, that he said to me, he said, you know, no one's ever... No one's ever talked to me about like the moment before and the moment after and whatever. I go, what do they tell you? And he said, basically, they just say, go be funny. And I go, well, well, this is how you get better at it, you know. And then, and then later on, when I did Big Daddy, Sandler and I worked really hard on his character. Is that because he, he again he had just done a lot of comedy and a lot of Saturday Night Live stuff, which you know, Saturday Night Live stuff. Uh, there's no, there's no continuity. You 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 go in and like you're you know the transvestite mailman walks into the somebody's office and blah blah blah. They do a bunch of stuff and then they figure out a way to get the transvestite mailman out of the office and that's the end of it. So there's every scene is a is a complete story and so they're not used to scene 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 and how does this relate to that and and you know, having come from theater, that's why going back to be, have been an actor and especially a theater actor, I I was able to or am able still to give those guys a sense of continuity and a sense of of, of working more it's, it's from sketches in, into film. In fact, uh, uh, Schneider and I were sitting around one time, and uh, he said, "You've worked with a lot." And we counted up, I've, I've worked with 29 alums from Saturday Night Live. Wow. That's, that's, that's crazy. Yeah, it's pretty <laughs> When you think about it. Well, then also, the, but when you're working, like, when you were directing Chris and you were directing Adam in those movies, then after that, when you, you went to doing Saving Silverman, then where you had more people in the leads, what was that transition like? Well, you know, that was great because, you know, now I've got, you know, Jack Black, who's a fucking genius, and and Steve Zahn, who is just one of the, you know, most amiable and talented and underused and undervalued actors in, in comedy or tragedy. Tragedy? Do they still use that now? I think they might. Uh, 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 so, yeah, and then... 
you know, I, when we were doing the rewrite, I, I came up with the idea of having them be a Neil Diamond cover band. So that, that was your idea. Yeah, and then we had we had Doug Neil Diamond in it doing that, and he did it. And uh, so we're he and I are still great buddies. And uh, uh, and Arlie Ermy, that that loon bag, uh, just the funniest guy, you know. Oh, but you know, but a great actor and and Amanda Pete. So uh, by then I was feeling very, you know, pretty comfortable because I had figured out, you know, I got better and better as a as a mechanical director in terms of shots and that sort of stuff. But I also felt felt more and more comfortable, you know cajoling and pushing actors to be better than they are and that sort of stuff. Now, through, you know, you've directed a lot of comedies, but I know also in your crew you've directed six NYPD blues. What was that like? Because I've had, I've had guests on who've been actors, and they say, you know, Milt's script is just, his, his scripts were just very, uh, so well written. What was that like being a director for a, a script that you know, like he's very straightforward? Yeah, well, when you go there and you do that, Show that you know working for Botchko and Botchko that that's a he Steve Botchko is a genius and and uh, doesn't uh, doesn't take anything lightly. They want you know they want you to do their show and give them give them their show and see if you can even do better than their show. And and to you know to push yourself and push them and uh, he was always Botsko always from the beginning was just always pushed boundaries you know from Hill Street Blues and and then you know L.A. Law and then cop rock and, and he just he never and then you know suddenly then doing uh, NYPD Blue where the, suddenly there's no uh, there's no looking camera left or just looking camera right, and it didn't matter and stuff. And so uh, they just they pushed you, and you had to push yourself just to be as good as as possible. And you were obviously getting great scripts. Uh, and but that's a, that was a place where you really you you know as good of friends as I am with Botchko, uh, having acted for him and directed for him. Man, you you had to bring your A plus game every single day to that place. Now, how is it like? Because you did it years between years. Was it when they, when you were available, or how does that work? Like, I mean, you you did. It, I mean, you look at the thing. You did it from you know your first episode was in like looks like ninety three or ninety four. You did episodes in two thousand four. How does that happen? Like with a TV director, do they sit there and say like with Moonlighting, you did every other show, but do they sit there and go, ah, oh, you know what, what we, we just want you once in a while? How does that work? Well, it just you know that at that time that's the, that's the way it, it just kind of worked. If, if if I was available, you know, then I then I would I do it. But you know, there were times when I do movies. You know, I mean, I've had times, you know, when I've had like two, three year, two, three movies in a row, and then when I just did this Sandler and I, I think we did, I don't know what we did. We did eight movies in seven years, or nine movies in eight years, something like that, never stopped. So I never had time to do television. Um, but again, you know, you go and, and you do, you go and do two TV. I've, I've been, I've been so lucky, you know, I got to work with, with, uh, David Kelly and, and Bochco and Cannell and, 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 and even, you know, working for Aaron Spelling. I did a couple pilots for him and some episodes for him. And all of these people are like, you know, just real artists, real hardworking people, and and it 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 was always a it was an honor and a pleasure to get those jobs, and and always to push yourself and try and make them as good as you possibly could. Do you like the fact that you? I mean, like as you said, you had Sandler and you had Farley. Then I believe it was uh, Martin Lawrence and National Security. Do you like the fact that they would give you these young uh, actor comedic actors and actually let them, you know, sort of. Not shape them, but lead their lead their creativeness. Yeah, you know, and and every one of them, you know, every one of them has their own 
particular style and their own their own you know particular quirkiness if you will and and uh they're all you know you think about sandler and you know martin lawrence and even farley and stuff they all they're all just as good as as you get comedically and uh you know even even you know when we did uh uh, Jack and Jill, and then we had Al Pacino in our movie. Suddenly, you're you know you're you're dealing with people who genuinely care about what they're doing, and they genuinely want it to be good. And you know you you would never find a, an actor who works or an actor writer producer who works harder than Adam Sandler. He it isn't a it's not a an accident that he has been as successful as he has because he, he works at it, you know, 24 hours a day. And the same thing with, you, you know, you got Pacino in there. Once Pacino takes a little, a little while for him finally to say yes, but once he says yes, even to your comedy where Adam's playing a guy and a girl, he is as dedicated to making that performance and that movie as good as if he were doing, you know, Shylock in Shakespeare right. in the park. <laughs> And, and the cool here's a funny thing about about Al Pacino because I, I fucking love that guy. He's such a he's he's, a, he's an actor's actor, and he is like so. The first time we're gonna go over to his house, and he's gonna give us notes on the script. Go over there. We let they let, they let us in. They put us in a a table in the backyard under the umbrella, and out comes Al with his script. And every page has a, a dog-eared page, and he's got notes on. <laughs> Every single page. So he goes, this and that, none of this, and I was thinking we should do this, and I could do this. But now, he was playing Al Pacino in the movie. So he would say, he'd go, he'd get to a place, and he'd go, okay, now here, you see here. Now, Pacino, what would he do here? <laughs> it was like if you were doing King Lear, you know, you know well, King Lear would walk down the steps. He go, but he's trying to, Pacino is sitting there trying to figure out what Pacino would do. How do you keep a straight face? I mean, I know you want it to, but... Just, but it was great. It, it was absolutely great because that's how deeply into it he wanted to be. He wanted to be, and he knew the Pacino we wanted him to be. We wanted the little, the bombastic Pacino. So he was trying to figure out how to, how to, how to inhabit that in, in an entire movie. Now, when you directed him, would you say, hey, we need a little more Pacino? <laughs> would no, you say? No. no, but, you know, he was, you know, literally, you're just directing him as if, like, as if it's Shakespeare, whatever, you know, you just, you know, you know what, what does the character want, and this and that, and the other thing. Uh, 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 what was I going to, I was going to tell you, I, 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 I got him to break up, which was one of my favorite things, because, He's playing, at one point, he's playing Richard III on stage. And uh, he starts talking on the telephone. It stops the performance. It starts talking on the telephone. And, and uh, so I was playing his understudy. So we did our little rehearsal, whatever stuff. Now they're lighting. He, he'd only known me as me. And, and I only I had like two lines. So... While we're getting all set, I go into the dressing room. I get dressed up as Richard the Third, got my hump and everything, and and and. Uh, but he hadn't seen me, so now we're ready to shoot. He's out on stage. Boom, action! He did it. He starts talking on the telephone. Now I, the understudy, walk out and I said, "Would you, Mr. Pacino, would you like me to, to to take your place?" He looks up at me <laughs> and just bursts out laughing. Right. <laughs> Right in the middle of the scene, and I always thought I always thought maybe it was I was so deeply in the character that I, that I made him laugh. But, oh, and so he, here's the thing that Pacino would do, which I I love to. So the the first the first scene we did, the shoot the master, and you know we shoot a bunch of takes, and we're always like rewriting and stuff. So we shoot a whole bunch of takes, and now I think I I've, I've got everything I want, and so I say Adam, you got everything you want. He goes, yeah. So I said, okay, that's it, we're moving on. And Al Pacino, now this is our first scene. He goes, 
wait. <laughs> and the whole place gets really quiet. And I go, oh, shit. And he goes, one more for free. And I go, okay. Okay. He says, who knows what might happen? So I go, okay, we'll go one more. Boom. And that's what he would do at the end of every, at the end of every, once, once we had done the master, I'd say, okay, we got it. And he'd go, one more for free. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> Your crew's probably yeah. going, what the hell? So now, now. Go ahead. No, I was going to say, after like Happy Gilmore, how did the relationship with Adam build? And did you end up doing so many of these movies? Was it just because you guys were, were there proven successes? Or did you just guys say we're going to work together because a lot of times you see an actor work with a director and then they weren't for a while but then this is more for you it was sort of like the the john hughes days when you know that he would use the same people i mean how did it start how did this relation continue how did the studios keep putting you guys together well we had a great time on that one then i went away he went away and did a, a, a movie with wayans one of the wayans brothers and i went away and i did ninja and then he did something else and then Big Daddy came up, and so he hired me back for that, and made it, we made a hit out of that too. So um, we just we we just gen we text you know three four times a week and talk on the phone and play tennis and we just like working with each other. Uh, I make his life easier, he makes my life easier, and we have a great time doing it. So why wouldn't we keep doing it? Now, with, with Big Daddy, I mean, you mentioned it earlier, but um, how is it when it's, it was a different perception of Adam Sandler? Like when I saw him in Punch Drunk Love, people thought that was supposed to be a comedy. It wasn't. Big Daddy was a comedy. It was a more tender side. How is a director, you take that on because everyone always knows the goofy Adam Sandler. Yeah, well, it was you know we we, we knew we knew what the story was and we knew who, who that character was and and uh, one of the things that where where I was valuable on that picture was none of those guys, not Tim Hurley or Adam or the, none of them had kids yet. So when I first came on, I go, yeah, you know. The, the one, the, my one big note about the script was it was kind of slanted toward Adam acting upon the kid and influencing the kid. And I said, I think you guys got it backwards. And they go, how? And I go, I go, that kid is going to affect Adam's life, not Adam affects the kid's life. And I said, and by the way, that's what we want to see. We want to see how his life gets turned upside down and how his arc and his feelings all have to change and they went oh yeah i go i go believe me i have i, I have a kid and, and that's the way it works you're the victim of the kid not the kid the victim of you and so that was actually my perspective on that was maybe my biggest contribution to that plus being able to talk with adam you know again pulling out his tender side and letting him just getting him to trust that it's okay for him not to be big and funny, you know, that he's the, because he is a very sweet guy. And, and so, you know, again, we got along really well doing that one too. And then, so then as time went by, we just figured, okay, let's just keep working again. Now, when you directed Bench Warmers, was that also, it was about baseball because your son was a extremely talented baseball player. Where did that come from? Were you, were you a good athlete when you were younger? No. No, uh, I'm actually a better tennis player than I was then, which show can, which isn't very hard to be. But uh, no, and 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 uh, my my son isn't me. I'm like five seven and 150 pounds, and he's six three and oh. two thirty. Um, oh, by the way, this is cool. He, he he was with the Phillies for a long time. This year he's with the Cubs in in Double A, and. He said when he was going down to spring training, he said, you know, Dad, no disrespect, but he said, I hope that they don't know that you're my dad when I get down there. Because he just wanted to be, it wasn't that he doesn't like me, it's just that he wants to be a, himself. 
he doesn't want to always be like, oh, his dad's a Hollywood guy. So I said, no, I get that. I get that. So he goes down to spring training. And uh, again, he's in, he's in the minors, but they brought him up to seven of the major league games in, during spring training. So three weeks, and he was hitting the ball really hard and really well, and he was hitting home runs in the minor league games and stuff, and then he hit one in the major league game. And so he gets called up to one of the games about three weeks in, and Jake Arrieta, who was the Cy Young Award winner last year, comes over to him and he goes, hey, he said, is your dad the guy that did Happy Gilmore? And Kelly goes, yeah, he was. And he goes, and, and Arietta goes, that's cool. And he turns to everybody and goes, yeah, it's his dad. Was and then Kelly said for the whole three hours of pregame warm-ups, all anybody's doing is shouting out Happy Gilmore lines. Because <laughs> every athlete, you know, because they see it on the bus, you know, and they always, every, every athlete has, has seen that movie probably 15 times. And... Uh, so he calls me up and he goes, they found out. And I go, oh, I'm sorry. He goes, no, no, it's cool. I'm, I'm happy that I... That I <laughs> That's funny. Uh, now, I, now, the grown-ups, what was that like directing? Because you're directing a bunch of stand-up comics. I used to do stand-up comedy. And if you get five stand-up comics in a room, I don't care how good of friends they are, they're all competing. It's just the, the, the way it goes. What was it like directing that when you got all those guys and such talented guys all together? Well, again, you know, they're all they're all friends, and and uh, every they all everybody understood what this was, which is you know, hang out and let's see how funny we can be hanging out, and and uh, so there was there, there wasn't any there's there's not any there's no ego on the set with that with that you know everybody first of all because Sandler wouldn't stand for it but second of all because he set it up so that everybody gets their fair share. Like, you know, the, in, in, in Grown Ups 1, there's a scene where they're all sitting on those Adirondack chairs out in front of the lake house and and just talking about a little bit about the plot, but then mostly just about, they're just bullshitting. And I had, I had a, a, a long set of dolly tracks across in front of the chairs so that the so the, uh, the the master camera could slide back and forth and get a little movement, and then I had two other cameras picking out singles and two shots, and so we rehearsed, you know, however we rehearsed, which was always just chaotic, kind of like not rehearsing, and then I go action, and I had somebody, I had an assistant sitting right next to me. And they'd start the thing, and they'd do the script, and they'd say, and then somebody would, like, dive off and start talking about McDonald's, or somebody would start talking about eel fishing, whatever it was. <laughs> and then they would all just start riffing. And we, the first take was 45 minutes till we ran out of tape. 45 <laughs> minutes. And, and, but meanwhile, while they're, while they're doing it, you know, and then they start going on, I go, and I'd, write, I'd say to the assistant, okay, McDonald's. And then I'd go, okay, uh, used cars, and whatever they were talking about. So I say cut, boom, we move two of the cameras, we keep the other one wide, we couldn't, and I said, okay, now pick up these shots. Well, we moved the two cameras to the other end, so we were getting some other shots. We go again, boom, they start, and then they start wandering off, and then, you know, the second time through, they're kind of getting a little dry with new, new material. So it, it, when, when, the, when, they, when they would just start to wander and it wasn't funny anymore, I just shot, McDonald's! And then they go, oh, McDonald's, and then they do the, they, riff on the McDonald's thing again, and then I go, use cars, and they go back and eel fishing. So we did another 45 minutes. And that was it. Two 45-minute takes for that scene. See, that's awesome. Yeah. We, and that's the way it went. You know, it was pretty good. I, it, it, there was never any, wow, that's your line, or you didn't do that, or why am I not funny or here? Why don't I have more to do? It was just like literally... The, the whole tone of that movie, which is guys hanging out at a lake house, that's what it was. Well, that, and it's a great movie. Now, we only have a few minutes left. See, an hour flies yeah. by. You have great stories. How do you pick the roles you play? Because you, you end up in all your movies. How do you pick them? Well, I don't really. You know, the, 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 the first one was, in, 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 in Problem Child, I just wanted to be the dad. So I just was, I hired myself to be the dad. 
the the uh, Happy Gilmore, we're up in Vancouver. We don't have any money, and we're trying to cram people in, fly them up and fly them back and whatever, and we're cramming all the schedules together so we didn't have anybody sitting around on per diem. And uh, we could do it except for Bob Simon says to me, he says, we can't, he said, you got to play the head of the PGA because we can't, we can't have somebody fly up and back and up and back. I go, head of the PGA, I said, think of that guy, he's got, got to be older. And Bob Simon looks at me and says, you're older. <laughs> so I go, okay, I'll play. So that's how I played that. And then uh, in, in Big Daddy, where I play the guy who gives him the finger, they just wrote it. They just said, hey, we wrote this for you. You're doing that, you know? And then again, in, uh, they just always, Sandor always goes, okay, you're playing this guy. You're, you're playing this. We wrote this. You'd be funny as the ta- taxi driver here, whatever. I think because they wanted to beat me up, you know, because I'm driving the taxi and Chuck and Larry, I'm driving the taxi and they get, the, you know, the most homophobic guy on the planet. And uh, they beat the crack. They, the first couple times, they were just fake struggling, you know. And I go, guys, you're just, you know, reaching from the back seat, kind of hitting me. I go, you're not doing it. We got to do it. If you're going to do it, let's just fucking do it. <laughs> and we were shooting on a green screen stage. So the cab is surrounded by that magical green cloth. So they, I go, okay, fine. I get they he Kevin James hit me so hard <laughs> that I, I finally you know and I just we finished it. I get out of the cab and and all you know when you see stars with well, seeing stars against the green screen thing is, is a is a hallucinogenic experience. <laughs> he hit me in the face. He hit me in the nose. He hit me in the just almost knocked me out. Um, so I don't pick them. They pick me. Now, do you miss acting at all? Yeah, like I said, I do it, you know. Pretty soon when I get, you know, about 15 years from now, when I'm too old to direct, I'll just go back to acting and I'll be, I'll, I'll, I'll get jobs as like the, the cranky uncle. That's the best just, kind of role. Yeah, I sit in the uh, uh, barker lounger and, and, <laughs> and shout funny stuff in a, in a growly voice. <laughs> so what's next on your agenda? Uh, I've got... I've got a script that I wrote that we're, we've got the money for. We just got to get a cast. Uh, and then I got two TV shows um, uh, that we're trying to sell. Cool. Well, and, you know, as soon as I get you off the phone, you're gonna... uh, I'm going to go have a beer and sit by the pool. What's wrong with you? I want to thank you for coming on. I contacted you like... Two years ago, and you're really busy, or a year ago, and I always do that. I, I I contact people, and then I see something that spurs my mind, and I go, oh, "I got to send them a message again," because I and then and you came on and did it, so I, I want to thank you. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, you do it. You're like a rash. You just keep coming back. So finally, you just go, "Okay, I'll put some salve on it." I know some poison ivy, and, and you got the whatever it is. So so now people <laughs> are, people are you on Twitter? I am, but I never go on it. Okay, well then we won't have them follow you on Twitter. <laughs> but no, people- I don't because I never put anything down. And then if I put something down, everybody is fine. They go, finally you put something on. And I go, yeah, all right. <laughs> I, I, I forget. I, it's so, I do so few. In, I, it, I forget how to do it. I have to go online and look how to Twitter. <laughs> well, people, go look up his movies. Go look at all the movies he's directed. They're all funny stuff. Uh, people follow me on Twitter. I'm at Cooper Talk. That's at Cooper Talk. Or you can go to my website, coopertalk.net. I have 545 episodes up there. You can email me, cooper at coopertalk.net. Instagram and Words with Friends are coopertalk1. I will play you in, in Words with Friends. You may beat my ass, but I will play you. And don't forget my other website, stopthesalt.com. You know, when I had a health problem a few years ago, I got out of the hospital. I wrote a cookbook. It's 120 low-sodium recipes. They're all easy to make. There's no pictures to intimidate you. No big long list of ingredients. Go buy it at StopTheSalt.com. You can get it at Barnes & Noble. You can get it at Amazon. But if you get it at StopTheSalt.com, I make more money and I'll sign it for you. So people, don't forget. Check out Dennis Dugan's work. Just go. If you want to laugh your ass off, check his work out. Rent some of his movies. Uh, follow me at Twitter. It's at CooperTalk. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water. Eat your vegetables. 
Take your vitamins, and I will talk to you guys next week.